Hello, 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 and welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. So I am a huge documentary buff, and I don't think I fully realized it until I poked around my homepage on Netflix, and it was all documentaries. It still is all documentaries. Normally there's something else there, right? Like a recommendation for science fiction movies or rom-coms. Nope, not for me. It is trending, what's new, and the rest is documentaries. So I decided that I wanted to share what are, in my opinion, some of the best documentaries you can find on Netflix. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. And it will certainly get heavy into topics that many, many, many may be sensitive to or are offended by, many different types of abuse, all the triggers when I talk about a specific category of documentaries. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now, on with the show. Today, I am kind of boring. I'm so sorry, but you know, you just gotta stick with what works. You know what I'm saying? I'm not making the coffee section as long and detailed as I did when maybe this podcast started, but coffee stays in. You'll always know what I'm drinking. And today I am drinking my favorite drink of all time from Starbucks, the Ice Brown Sugar Oat Milk Shake and Espresso. If you have not tried it, you need to. Regardless of whether you're a fan of oat milk or not, this is just, it, it wouldn't be the same with whole milk or almond milk. It is specific to oat milk, this is the only way you can have it. Now let's get into the documentaries, shall we? I am gonna split these up into four categories because the term documentary is so broad. The definition is literally a movie or television or radio program that provides a factual record or report. So the options are pretty much endless. The four categories will be feel-good docs, which are documentaries that make you feel good, duh. They're happy, they're lighthearted, they're very easy to watch. The next category will be true crime documentaries, which can get very, very, very dark, but is certainly the most popular type of documentary. The next category will be celebrity documentaries, self-explanatory, and the final will be enlightening documentaries, ones that explore topics that are a bit more unique. So without further ado, let's start with the enlightening documentaries. The first documentary is Social Dilemma. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. There's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. This is not only an enlightening documentary, but also a terrifying one, if I'm being completely honest. It makes you never want to use social media ever, 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 ever again. I already wiped Facebook. I haven't had a Twitter in, God, like eight years now. It's been a long time since I had a Twitter. I saw the fucking writing on the wall a long, long, long time ago. And speaking of writing on the wall, can we bring MySpace back? I know they don't even have an app on phones, but... I feel like with this new movement of the Gen Z wanting the Y2K aesthetic, thinking, you know, it's like the new hot thing, shouldn't they want MySpace? Like TikTok is great and all, but why don't you want to go true Y2K? Why not go full-blown nostalgia in the 2000s and get a MySpace? A top eight, a song on your profile. We can edit the HTML codes. Oh my God, I thought I was a coder when I had a MySpace. You have no idea. I love how I'm saying all this after I just admitted that I want to get rid of all my social media because of this documentary. I'm going completely sideways. 
one day I will not use my phone and I will just garden and have a farm or something close to a farm and spend all my time with animals and reading books and writing and being completely disconnected from everybody and the world. That is the dream. That is the goal. The documentary, The Social Dilemma, plays alongside a reenactment, I would say. It's not like a movie. It's more like when you watch Snapped or Forensic Files, which I think added to the documentary a lot. It shows normal day-to-day tasks that have to do with our phone and how those tasks are actually collecting data in ways that you may not even be aware of. This doc is not full of quacks. These are people who were high up in major tech companies like Twitter, Google, Facebook. They even had the former president of Pinterest sharing the terrifying insider details about these companies' major goals. Or I should say goal. And that is keeping you on your device. And to do that, they put you into an algorithm. A bonus of having you in an algorithm They can sell that information on you to advertisers to fucking monetize you. For example, I look on Pinterest for recipes mostly. So now my taste in food is in an algorithm. I scroll Instagram and stay on a specific post, maybe a political post, and I like it. Boom. They now know my political stance or have a general idea of it. Their business model is to keep you engaged and to even push it further to possibly change the way you think. This isn't my tinfoil hat theory. No, 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 no. This is multiple intelligent people's beliefs. Not even beliefs. They know what I'm about to explain is true. These internet companies are harvesting a lot of data. If you're introverted, if you're lonely, hungry, in a relationship, the consistency of your shit, what ailments you may have because you WebMD a migraine at three o'clock in the morning. They know your kinks. They know what makes you laugh. They know it all. The algorithm is for something so much bigger than advertising. And again, I know it's going to sound crazy, but these are people who know this to be true. People who worked high up in big tech also agreed on this. And I'm going to explain it with an example, which will be TikTok. If a person or a group or a company goes to TikTok and said, here's $10 million, change the way 1% of people think on this subject. Boom, done. Let's say the person who gave TikTok the money was someone in the beef industry and their best interest, their financial interest would be to make you a meat eater. On your For You page, you will have videos about the importance of beef, Burger King advertisements. And they would try to change the way we think in subtle ways that we may not even recognize. That's terrifying. That makes me feel like a stranger in my own skin. This documentary is very scary, but it's also a very informative watch. Our minds are extremely susceptible as human beings. It's not a weakness. It's how we are wired. And big tech uses the advanced science of psychology to persuade us in ways that modify our thoughts and behavior without us even knowing. They exploit our psychology. Insane. Almost depressing. Another eye-opening but really tough documentary to watch is Crack, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. In the 80s, there was a lifestyle of celebration, and Coke was part of that lifestyle. It was the glitzy drug. When Crack came along, it changed everything about the black community, and it changed everything about America. The drug so powerful, it will make you sell the clothes off your back. The reporting played right into all of these stereotypes. It felt extraordinarily hypocritical. This was happening at a time when the U.S. government was turning a blind eye to cocaine smuggling. Our goal was to defeat communism in Central America. And if that meant drugs got in and the youth of America used them, well, that was the way it was going to be. We knew that they were in on it. We knew that they were dealing on the side. It's a story that has to be told. It's really hard to boil this down into a neat summary, but this documentary is critical to watch. The crack era of America, it completely changed this country. And the response to drug use, like the just say no campaign and all that bullshit, was not designed to help people at all. 
the documentary really gets to the root of the issue and all the nuances of it. It starts by explaining that the 80s were an affluent time and people were going to clubs and money was flowing and Scarface came out, which made cocaine the glamorous drug to use. Powdered cocaine was not a drug a lot of people could afford. It was an elite, expensive drug. Then everything changed. Millions of families in the 80s were thrown into extreme poverty. Unemployment was at a historic high. It was not a good time. At whatever point during this time period, an influx of cocaine came into the U.S. because it was coming from all different places. And because of this, the price dropped drastically. Around that same time, Richard Pryor, who was a massive celebrity, had an incident where he got badly burnt up because of a different type of cocaine a freebase cocaine. This kind of cocaine had to be cooked up and turned into a rock type texture. And that was a convenient way to sell it because nobody wanted to do the cooking, right? And this new bit of cocaine was called crack. Suddenly everyone was addicted to it. It was infecting everybody like a virus. Even police were heavily involved in dealing, using, and all the corruption that went along with that. The domino effect from the crack epidemic cannot be understated. It, like I said, changed this country completely. The details of how it affected America by infecting impoverished communities first was really difficult to learn about, not because the documentary made it hard to understand. It was very clear, very, very, very good. They did a great job explaining everything. It's just really hard to watch the reality of what people were going through. But it's important, and I think everyone should know about it. Let's switch to a lighter enlightening title, a docuseries to be more specific, titled Broken. Everybody just wants the nicest, newest thing for the cheapest price possible. Counterfeits have tested positive for known carcinogens. Horse urine, super glue. I was tugging at my lips, trying to pull them apart, and it hurt. One garbage truck of plastic is dumped into the oceans every minute. They're saying you, the consumer, have the responsibility to solve this problem, not we, the industry. There is a price tag attached to the low price. What drew me to this docuseries originally was some drama in the beauty community. If you aren't up to date on all that, boy, do you have catching up to do. If you want some reality TV level drama that eventually boiled over into real life, actually harmful, illegal acts. Let me know. Let me know if you want the tea. I'll point you in the right direction. You'll have months of watching to do before you're even remotely caught up on what's happening today inside the beauty community. But this docuseries focuses on how the rise of the beauty industry also was the rise of counterfeit makeup. It all happened in tandem. But it also sprinkles in some really cool information about the rise of indie brands, specifically ColourPop Cosmetics. And ColourPop has completely changed the game. Like, you you have no idea. They have an in-house lab that can go from an idea to a product on the market in five days. That, that is not normal. You have no idea what that does to the market. ColourPop has its pros and cons. The pros are the sort of made-to-order way they operate prevents a lot of waste. They don't have a warehouse of products that aren't being used and aren't selling that end up in landfill. And also their method keeps costs low, which allows them to offer very affordable prices. The other major gripe I see a lot of people have with ColourPop is that they come out with three new launches every week, massive launches, and it promotes consumerism. But at the end of the day, that's not an issue that I personally have. But I understand why others struggle with that business model. A lot of this I already knew, but the counterfeit stuff, that blew my mind. I had no idea. I didn't know people like actually bought fake shit. These counterfeit products have like rat feces, horse urine, horrendous, horrendous shit is in this counterfeit makeup and it causes severe reactions, obviously. The makeup episode is only episode one. They cover topics like vaping, Ikea and recycling. And those episodes had a lot more information I wasn't privy to. It's just a really easy watch with great information. When I tell you I am, was, always will be obsessed with the debacle that was Fire Festival, I I don't think you'll ever understand. This documentary, Fire, the greatest party that never happened, 
was amazing. All these models, like, in the Bahamas. The most insane festival the world has ever seen. Island getaway turned disaster. It became very barbaric. Right now, we are the fucking laughing stock of everything. These guys are either completely full of shit or they're the smartest guys in the room. Desperate people do desperate things. He was lying to investors and making it seem like we were making a ton of money when we weren't. There's mattresses all over the place getting soaked. The save yourself mode kicked in. Right, it's a free-for-all. It became this looting mentality. There's an angry mob. They're pissed off and they want their money. Powerful models built this festival. And then one picture of cheese on toast ripped down the festival. It came out at the same time another Hulu documentary came out about the same topic. I recommend both. They're both fantastic. If you don't know, the Fire Festival was this luxurious, glamorous music festival with people like Major Lazer, Blink-182, Pusha T, Migos, and a ton more artists on Pablo Escobar's island. And it was run by Ja Rule and Billy Porter. I believe that's his last name. Sorry if I've mistaken it, but I'm pretty sure that's his last name. The two met and started a booking marketplace for celebrities. You could like scroll through the website and find a celebrity you wanted to book for an event. And it was very simple. It was just through that website. Easier for the artist, easier for the person booking. They called that app and website Fire. To promote the app, the creative director of Fire recommended throwing a festival for industry professionals. And Billy morphed that dramatically into his own idea. And he had no experience putting together an event, let alone a music festival on an island. The most fascinating part of the entire fire debacle to me was the promotion. They flew a bunch of models out and had this high production promo shoot in the Bahamas, which wasn't even really a shoot at all. It was like a booze fest and was completely unorganized. The work environment for those actually doing the work was horrendous. Regardless of the horrendous working conditions and the intense partying, if you were on Instagram in 2017, you saw the world's most famous models posting about their trip to the Bahamas and that burnt orange tile with the caption, join me at Fire Festival. From a marketing and social media perspective, it was gold. This festival seemed like it was going to be a bunch of models lounging around on a beautiful island, which hello, that sells. Tickets and packages were fucking insane. They went from like a basic $1,200 ticket for this little but still glamorous Coachella style tent up to 250 grand for a yacht with a private chef. You'd think that these prices would be too much for at least some of the packages. Nah, shit sold out, which meant that over a thousand people would be on this island. And when it was time to actually put this shit together, with six to eight weeks, by the way, to make this a reality, things like having a toilet, internet, and a working sound system for artists and air conditioning. When that reality struck, that's when it all started to crumble. At that same time, the fire team completely ignored the Escobar's family's demand of not using Pablo Escobar's name in the marketing. They wanted his name nowhere near this. And literally, they used it in the first marketing video they put out about this. Boom, cut. The family said, fuck off. You can't use our island. So then they had to move to a hazardous area of a main island during the biggest weekend of the year, by the way, on this said island. And the viral photo we all saw shifted from Kendall Jenner on a beach to a ham sandwich in a FEMA emergency tent. It's crazy. I literally want to share every small piece of this madness with you because it's just so fucking good. But I'll let you watch. It may seem like I gave a lot away, but I gave nothing away. Every detail of this story is absolutely fascinating. The next documentary is Have a Good Trip, Adventures and Psychedelics. I don't think psychedelics are the, the answer to the world's problems, but they could be a start. What is going on in your brain when you are tripping? I don't feel anything. These mushrooms don't work at all. That's always when you say, I don't feel anything. It's usually the tipping point. Do I feel anything? What is feeling? Very quickly, I entered this psychedelic realm. Everything is coming alive. The grass starts talking to me. No lie, a rainbow shot out of my dick. It turned the world around you into an opera of your nightmare. I took acid once, maybe even didn't need to. Probably could have just watched this documentary. This documentary was so informative, but also so chill. 
I was expecting this to be a scary propaganda documentary hiding beneath a colorful, trippy cover art. And it was quite the opposite. Basically, a bunch of celebrities share their experience using psychedelics, like Sting and ASAP Rocky and the late great Carrie Fisher and Anthony Bourdain. And also, I gotta say, I know I was just shitting on Sarah Silverman in I think the last episode or the episode before that, I don't remember. And I still very much dislike her, but her story was one of the funniest. I really enjoyed her in this documentary. All of the stories were hilarious, everyone's. It was a really good time. I never tried psychedelics. It's on my bucket list. I don't know how safe it will be combined with my medications, but I will be sure to get back to you on that one. The documentary doesn't just give you celebrity experiences. Like I said, it's very informative from a scientific standpoint as well and really challenges the scare tactics and misunderstanding of certain drugs in mainstream media, especially within the last 50 years. And I also love that it's not just sunshine and roses. The topics they discuss also share the dangers of the drugs as well. That's my favorite approach to a controversial topic, to share all sides of it and to let the viewer or listener come to their own conclusion. I read that this documentary is a totally insane experience if you watch while you trip. It has certain art and graphics that are a really good time. So there you go. Be safe, be responsible, have a good trip. Now let's get into the celebrity documentaries. The first title is a docu-series, a 10-part series at that, and is one of my all-time favorite series ever, documentary or not. I've talked about it before in my best of episode, not this past year's, but the year before that. Whether you are a basketball fan or not, you need to watch The Last Dance. Michael Jordan and the Bulls changed the culture. I let my anger motivate the players. We look for number six. They all understood who I was. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. Chances are you know who Michael Jordan is and you know about The Last Dance already. So I'll keep this short and sweet. In the fall of 1997, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls allowed a film crew to follow them as they went for their sixth NBA title in eight seasons, which obviously captured an insane season because this doc follows the entire 1997 to 1998 season from start to finish. It wasn't just that season featured in the series, of course. It goes back and forth with other parts of Michael's life and career. The footage in this series from Jordan's entire career is mind-boggling. It was absolutely insane to see what they captured. I really enjoyed that they didn't just talk about Michael Jordan because the Chicago Bulls team was great because of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, period. And the coach, of course. I also thought it was really cool that they didn't shy away from the ugly parts. I walked away from this docuseries like, damn, Michael Jordan is kind of a dick at times. I was a wee little child when all of this was going down, so I had no idea. I thought Michael Jordan was just the nicest, coolest Space Jam guy. I only knew about this team and these years of basketball from watching old games on tape and shit. My dad's a big basketball fan. Larry Bird's biggest fan, to be specific. That man made me watch a VHS documentary on Larry Bird every night when I went to bed, which explains a lot. I think. No wonder I'm a nut for documentaries. That one was boring as shit, though. I don't recommend that one. I had no problem falling asleep to it. But yeah, my dad was wicked into basketball, so I always had a general understanding of this very special team and their success. What I didn't know was how amazing their head coach was and how much of a cunt their GM was. And obviously a plethora of other details surrounding the team, but you get what I'm saying. There was a lot I didn't know. It's an amazing watch. Like I said, if you don't enjoy basketball, I think you could still enjoy this. But if you appreciate the sport, this docuseries goes above and beyond. Next up is Jim and Andy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jim Carrey, and how are you this evening? All righty then. Finding out you have something special and it gets a reaction, that's how I got attention and love. Andy Kaufman came in to turn reality on its head and not stop when the cameras stop. Andy Kaufman cared less about making his audience laugh than keeping them confused. When I heard I had the part, I was looking at the ocean, and that's the moment when Andy came back to make his movie. What happened after was out of my control. 
Andy felt it was necessary to stay in the character. He's exactly the way Andy was. It's totally surreal. Universal didn't want the footage we took behind the scenes to surface so that people wouldn't think I was an asshole. I was thinking, how far should I take this? How far would Andy take it? This documentary follows Jim Carrey as he portrayed the late great Andy Kaufman in 1998's Man on the Moon. And the footage prior to this documentary had remained completely unseen. Andy Kaufman, if you don't know, is... How do I explain Andy Kaufman? Controversial for some, uh, genius for others. And Jim saw a lot of himself in Andy, so he felt compelled to play him in the film Man on the Moon. Obviously both were our comedians, and I would even go as far as to say that they both specialized in physical comedy. Eccentric comedy, I would throw that out there too. Jim Carrey also had to audition for this role, which was not common for him at this time. He was kind of in his prime, and that sort of made him check his ego, which he did so happily. The footage is definitely kind of haunting to watch because Jim explained that Andy tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'll take it from here. Andy, of course, at that time was deceased. So Jim was speaking about him spiritually. And he said everything that happened after that was out of his control. And from that point until the end of this movie, Jim refused to be called anything but Andy on set. The documentary showed him getting annoyed with the director for explaining to Jim between takes what Jim needed to do because Andy would, etc., etc. right? Clear director's notes between takes. It's a common thing. He was playing a character, but Jim Carrey was like, no, why are you talking about me like I'm not here? I am Andy. So everyone on set called him Andy or they'd be corrected. Alrighty then. And he was dead serious too, dead serious. And sometimes it was detrimental. Honestly, from watching it, it seemed like he was a child on set. The director even said it was frustrating at times. Jim even went to Steven Spielberg's offices while in character as Andy Kaufman, who was in character as another character, Tony Clifton, if you can even follow that. Layers to this. And he demanded to see Steven Spielberg to tell him that his movies didn't need to be so crowd-pleasing. Nobody there knew that this was Jim Carrey. It was absolute anarchy. And that really is similar to how Andy Kaufman was, ironically. But also, from Jim's perspective, purposely. The shtick never ended with Andy Kaufman. He was really experimental with his comedy and portrayed these characters and situations that he wouldn't step out of, so nobody really knew the real Andy Kaufman. I think the documentary is phenomenal, and at the very least, it's insane to see someone commit themselves completely in a way that is almost uncontrollable. And Man on the Moon is also a great movie. I recommend both. Moving on to a docu-series, Hip Hop Evolution. This is the birthplace where it all began. Placed my fingers on the vinyl. I let it go, stopped it. But the taboo thing was you're not supposed to touch the middle of the vinyl. They had this incredible sound system. So you never see nothing like it. It's the next generation ushering in a new idea. Something had to be able to give upward motion and strength and pride. You got words, you got a voice, use it. This is a docu-series with four amazing seasons. Every episode is engaging and fun and exciting and informative. This is something I would recommend to someone who maybe doesn't like documentaries, you know? There's documentaries out there that can be a bit slow, and in order to enjoy them, you really have to be committed to the information you are receiving, not just the flashiness. You don't have to compromise one for the other with Hip Hop Evolution, though. It's hosted by Juno Award-winning artist Shad, and it shows us the history of hip hop, and we get to hear from the leaders of hip hop across multiple generations. It really does a great job explaining the seed of hip hop, then shows how it grew and branched off into so many different types of hip hop that have different vibes, but all connect to the same tree. They talk about rap and hip hop in different regions, Washington Square ciphers, and how that sort of evolved into the Detroit rap battles, a la Eminem. They talk about hip hop from different eras and explain the come up of different artists like 50 Cent, Lil' Kim, Africa Bambada, Ra Digga, Wu-Tang, obviously Pac and Big. All that is touched on. They talk about all of it. 
If you're a hip hop lover, you will love this docu-series. You'll binge it in a few days easily. It's so fucking good. Speaking of hip hop, the final celeb documentary is Time is Illmatic. 1994 classic Illmatic. Every rhyme was like the best I ever heard in my life. He had the courage to tell the truth about the dark side of black existence in America. We had a beautiful home inside that neighborhood. But outside, shots going off every night. I was really worried when I was in his brother. I had to prepare to block that hate out or to tear that down. It's one of the best albums of all time. Illmatic is one of those transformative moments in hip-hop. Nestled within all of that street grimy, this is hope. I wanted to do Illmatic to leave my voice as proof that I was here. Unlike Hip Hop Evolution, this is definitely a slower paced documentary. It's still fantastic, but if you're really not a fan of documentaries, you may be bored with this one. I can love it for myself and acknowledge that it may not be for everyone. Unless you're a Nas fan or are very interested in learning about Nas, I don't know if you'll love it as much as me, but definitely give it a try. What was really fascinating about it was that you can tell Nas attributes a lot of who he is as a human and as an artist to his family. It was a really intimate look at Nas's life and how he grew up in certain circumstances. And as you can imagine, if you know anything about Nas and where he came from, it was not fucking easy. He had a very hard life. One thing I didn't know was that Nas moved from the South to New York at a very young age and experienced a crazy culture shock. If you're unfamiliar, we operate very differently in the Northeast. We are just built different, especially New Yorkers. New Yorkers are a different breed, man. The environment that he was put into at a young age was horrible and it set kids up to fail, which is a much bigger conversation with a lot of nuances. But simply put, this wasn't the highest quality of living according to Nas. It's not a flashy documentary by any means, but I feel like it couldn't be paced any other way. It's not rushed and I feel like each and every part of it was done with purpose and it didn't feel disconnected from Nas. I don't know how to explain it. It almost felt like a memoir, which is how I like my celeb documentaries to feel. Almost like I was flipping through a massive photo album of Nas's life. That's what it felt like. That's the best way to put it. Obviously, it goes into a lot of detail about how the songs were made on Illmatic, which made me have a whole new appreciation for the album, which I already have an immense appreciation for. I think Nas is one of the greatest rappers dead or alive, and the Illmatic is one of the greatest bodies of work in rap, period. This documentary, Time is Illmatic, was insightful, intimate, and very informative. Three eyes, look at me go. Alliteration, baby. The next category is true crime and... Some of these guys, they're like really, really fucking dark. Specifically the first one, it is absolutely no doubt the hardest documentary that I'm mentioning to watch, but it tells an important story and that's why I think it's one of the best out there. I'm going to start with the super hard one first. It's a docu-series titled The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. This case is going to be very emotional, so at any point you find yourself getting a little overwhelmed, please step out of the courtroom, compose yourself and then come back inside. Gabriel Fernandez was, at the time of his death, eight years old. That was my friend, and it really caught me because it was his parent who took his life. How did a child who had so many signs of repeated and long-term abuse slip through the cracks? It really wasn't until I got all of the evidence that I realized how egregious the case was. As prosecutors, we need to up our game. She didn't just prosecute the mother and her boyfriend. She also took the step of prosecuting the four social workers. I believe the ultimate evil is seeing what's wrong and looking away when you have a power to make the difference. This series tells the story of Gabriel Fernandez, an eight-year-old boy whose life was taken by his own mother and her boyfriend. This was no accident on their part. This was horrifying and callous. Simply put, his mother is soulless and clearly had no remorse and felt no guilt. And the hardest part of all of this was how much this little boy loved his mother, despite how fucking 
awful this cunt treated him. Even when he was locked in cabinets with his mouth covered, even when he was starved and forced to eat kitty litter, even when he got daily beatings by his mother and her boyfriend that could have easily killed him, he loved and protected his mother. It's really hard for me to even talk about this documentary, but here's why it's one of my favorites despite that. I know that sounds really weird. I probably will not watch it ever again, but it's one of those docu-series or pieces of work that you need to see at least once. If you can stand it, of course. This docu-series is not just about Gabriel. Child abuse is a fucking problem. And in situations like Gabriel's, this can often and sometimes does lead to death. Getting an up-close, extremely painfully detailed, and I do mean detailed, we see the 911 call, the trial where the cunt mom and her cunt boyfriend showed nothing, not a lick of fucking remorse, not a glimmer of human emotion. We hear from the ER nurse that treated Gabriel as he died, a security guard who witnessed the abuse, texts and phone calls between the mom and the boyfriend, anyone who wanted to speak and any bit of information that Netflix could get their hands on was shown. We see every corner of this case. DCFS, the sheriff department, social workers, all of these people knew that this kid was being beaten badly. They were informed numerous times. And what what was done? What was done? Nothing. I know the system will never be perfect. I'm well aware of that. But this, this will make you angry, which I, I do believe is the point of it. It's graphic and heartbreaking purposefully. It's done to prove a point. It's to really show you the reality of what millions of children's lives look like. I don't know if I explained this series well, I just feel like if you can handle watching it, you should. It will stay with you forever. It will change your perspective on a lot of things. The next docuseries is titled Girls Incarcerated. Madison is a maximum security facility that gets girls from all over the state. Their offenses range from a small time drug possessions, breaking and entering. I'm the trouble child. My first charge was like 12 years old. Mine too. I've been locked up in and out for like four years. Six months. For a year and three days. Growing up, I got took away from my mom when I was five because she had a drug addiction. My mama always was in the streets and my mom in prison. And look at me, I'm in prison. I tempered aggressive. You piss me off, you look at me wrong, I'm fighting you. I am in prison, but this place is helping me do better in life. If I wasn't here, then I'll probably be dead. She told me that I'm worth something in the world, that I can do better with my life. For a lot of the kids, this is where people care about them the most, and it's heartbreaking. It's not just a job for me. It's been my life. Everybody has a chance to change. I might have did some stuff in the past, but that don't define who I am today. Ain't no turning back. Either I'm gonna win or I'm gonna lose, and I ain't trying to lose. This is a show that I think is really misunderstood. And I think the young ladies in the show are severely misunderstood. But I'll get to that. The show follows teenage inmates of the Madison Juvenile Correctional Facility in Madison, Indiana, which has since been closed down. And in season two, the focus shifted to the teenage inmates at LaPorte. Apparently, Madison closing down was actually a positive thing. According to the Michigan City News Dispatch, it was no longer needed to house the dozens of teens charged with petty crimes like alcohol and marijuana possession. Instead, the high-risk inmates were moved to and combined with Laporte's maximum security facility. If I'm understanding correctly, the petty crimes, the kids that committed those, were being dealt with through counseling and drug treatment and things of that nature, which I think is appropriate. The people that watch this show and complain and clutch their pearls like... <gasps> The way these girls speak is absolutely foul. The way they talk to staff is foul. They aren't rehabilitated. I remember when the show aired, I was doing some reading on it and I came across one rando online just bitching. And they're allowed to have their opinion, absolutely. But I am too. And this person went off about how this place was more like a summer camp than a jail. And by some miracle, I found it again. And this person went on to say, quote, there are fundamental, all capital, reasons that the United States prison system, all capital, was founded upon. And not the least was that any citizen able to be reformed and placed back into the public must be reformed and not a threat to themselves or others. These girls are way overindulged. They get so much more of everything than people in prison. Their sense of entitlement sickens me. 
Three exclamation points. All that money being spent on those personal tablets, the fancy gym and cardio equipment, the super long breaks with the TV, comfy chairs, arts and crafts equipment, etc. All that money coming out of our taxes. They're ungrateful for it. Sorry for the length of that bullshit, but this seems to be a common complaint amongst people who very clearly grew up in Pleasantville and have no basic understanding of what a child, a child needs to develop into a decent adult, a functioning adult. These kids, 99% of them anyway, have home lives you couldn't possibly imagine. Some of them don't even have homes. Some have literally no place to go when they get released. Some have the luxury of going home to abuse, physical, sexual, mental abuse. A lot of them have drug and alcohol addictions on top of that. These are children. They aren't fucking animals. They don't need to be put in shackles and a dark cell for 23 hours a day. What the fuck is wrong with you? They're acting out for attention. That's normal. That's child behavior. And many of them are fucking traumatized. The majority have literally never had any type of affection or compassion. In a lot of cases with young girls who feel abandoned by their families and feel like they don't have any love in their life, they are often the target of grooming by older men. And that's who they fucking turn to for love. A lot of the time, the only love and support they receive is from the gang members in their neighborhood. How lucky are you that you did not have that reality growing up? Have some fucking compassion. It's amazing that people lack that even for children that are severely traumatized. They're immediately labeled as disrespectful and brats, which they are, 100%. It's surface level though. A hit dog fucking cries. The facilities shown in the series, both of them, put a heavy focus on the importance of education to get out of the criminal cycle. And something seemingly small but really stuck out to me as something important was that the girls aren't called prisoners or inmates. They're called students, which is a bit more humanizing for them. It's a seemingly simple change, but I feel like it matters even on a subconscious level for them. In the facility, they have a program to complete. And when they do so, they have this big celebration and a graduation with the cap and the gowns and their families, which is great because these kids need positive reinforcement. If you don't want them to be brats and disrespectful, give them positive reinforcement. Otherwise, they're only getting attention for being disrespectful and being bad, which in turn, a child who needs a lot of attention is going to act out for that attention. The series also does a great job at explaining the dangers of a capitalistic prison system that takes advantage and profits off of at-risk children. But the heart of the show is truly the girls and their stories, which they get to tell in their own words, and it's fucking heartbreaking. It really, really is. I think society listens to how these girls speak or see how they behave in adult ways and immediately forget that there is a child under there. These aren't adults. These are fragile children. Call me a fucking softy or spineless. I don't give a fuck. Compassion goes a long way for any human, especially ones who are in a critical stage of development and have no other love in their life. But go off, throw them all in a fucking damp cage until they curtsy and speak like proper ladies. I'm sure that'll work out perfectly. My emotions are all over the place with this true crime shit. I just got so sad and angry and then angry again. And unfortunately, this is another anger-inducing docuseries. Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. No one has allegedly murdered two people and then played an entire season as a professional athlete. Aaron Hernandez was a different level of athlete. He was kind. He wasn't someone who picked on other kids. Aaron Hernandez was a ticking time bomb. He had trouble with drugs, with guns. New England Patriot Aaron Hernandez was arrested this morning at his residence. Aaron was accused of murdering Odin Lloyd, his future brother-in-law. So why is the story here? Violent outbursts were not uncommon in the Hernandez home. Aaron had history of concussion-related injuries. I was the happiest little kid in the world, and you fucked me up. I ain't living with that. You did. I had nobody. What do you think I was going to do? Become a perfect angel? If you are unfamiliar, Aaron Hernandez was a tight end for my beloved New England Patriots from 2010 to 2012. And he was not a popular teammate at all. 
Brady couldn't even steer him in the right direction and called him a lot to handle, which for Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. is basically code for this dude is off the fucking rails. Belichick also couldn't deal with him and Coach B doesn't put up with shit at all and intended to notify the front office to have Hernandez released from the team in 2013. But Hernandez's career was over abruptly without Belichick's release after his arrest and conviction for the murder of Odin Lloyd Jr. He was found guilty of first-degree murder in 2015 and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Then, while on trial for Lloyd's murder, was also indicted for the 2012 double homicide of Danielle de Abreu and Safiro Furtado, but he was acquitted after a 2017 trial. Days after being acquitted of the double homicide, Hernandez was found dead in his cell, which was ruled as a suicide. You'd think I just gave the entire documentary away. No, 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 no. The horrific events are not the story here. Well, they are, but that sounds bad. It's almost like everyone watching already knows he did this. They just don't know the details. And that's really where this documentary becomes truly an incredible watch. You learn about who Aaron Hernandez was and what made him a monster. A lot of little events throughout his life built up and formed this horrendous person. It's the ultimate compilation of all the red flags in his life. And for me, the most fascinating part was discovering the results of his autopsy. The autopsy revealed that he had severe CTE damage. And if you don't know, CTE is a neurodegenerative disease linked to repeated blows to the head, a la a tight end in football. The symptoms usually pop up eight to 10 years later and can include behavioral problems, mood problems, and problems with thinking. The disease often gets worse over time and can result in dementia. A lighthearted side note, when I watched this documentary for the first time, they showed an image of him in his high school yearbook. And in that moment, I'm dead serious. I was like, bro, that man's yearbook quote is from the Sky Dancers theme song. I'm showing my age with this shit, but I had two of the episodes of Sky Dancers on the most beautiful turquoise VHS. Ugh, I'm nostalgic as fuck for that show. I might actually throw that on to calm down after I record this because this is rough. I need some lighthearted energy. Please don't think that when I say rough, it means these documentaries are bad. I thoroughly enjoy them. It's hard to say enjoy and entertainment when it comes to like the true crime documentaries, but I think we all understand what I mean by that. True crime is a major form of entertainment right now, so I think we all understand what I mean when I say entertained by it or that it's a good documentary. Just wanted to clarify, just in case. It turns out that his yearbook quote, which was, if it is to be, then it is up to me, was in fact a quote from William Johnson who wrote some smart book once upon a time. But in my head, I like to think Aaron Hernandez's yearbook quote was instead from Skydancers. Now on to my favorite of all of the documentaries I am mentioning today, The Pharmacist. I'm Dan Schneider, and I'm a pharmacist. My son was murdered, buying crack. The police have the attitude that these kids maybe got what they deserve. I was determined to get the killer off the street. If the police wasn't going to do it, I was going to do it. At first, my mission was to get justice for my son. But then I started noticing in the drugstore, a lot of kids around my son's age coming in with high-powered opiate prescriptions for Oxycontin. Word on the street was, it's just heroin and a pill. There was a certain doctor using her license to virtually decimate my community. I couldn't look the other way. The DA and FBI was either incompetent or in cahoots. I just knew that people were making money. And I saw this opiate epidemic in its infancy. I'm not gonna let this drug continue to kill. This is gonna sound crazy and that's okay, but please trust me. I don't wanna share a fucking lick of this series. And I just want you to watch it and be surprised at the unraveling of madness that happens. The story is insane. Absolutely insane. I'll give you a taste though. That's why I'm here, right? The story is about a man who took on big pharma in the midst of the opioid crisis. When Oxycontin was given out like fucking candy and was toted as the wonder drug. 
But this is so, 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 so much more than that. It's a perfect documentary. The editing, the sound, the cinematography, all of it is unbelievable. You'll need to start this on a day off or when you have a lot of time on your hands because you will not want to stop. You will not pull yourself away from your TV until it is over. I saved the feel-good stuff for last so we can end it on a high note and sort of fling the ick across the room. And what warms the heart more than Shit's Creek? Of course, best wishes, warmest regards easily lands on this list. I am very proud of the fact that this show sort of shines like a positive light out there into people's homes. But the fact that people are also experiencing something deeper through the show is... You can't ask for anything better. It's wonderful. I am perpetually impressed by the grace of our fans because while they were quite upset and saddened by the news, there was this positive sentiment of like, we understand. This is a very simple documentary following Dan Levy and the cast of Schitt's Creek as they film the final season of the show. And it intertwines cast interviews and you get to see the fans' reactions to the show and it's all just so heartwarming. It's the ultimate feel-good watch for Schitt's Creek fans. What really got me the most in this documentary was a letter the cast received from a Facebook group that consisted of LGBTQ plus mothers expressing their gratitude for the show. We have more than 5,000 moms in the group, and many of us are working to make the world a kinder, safer, more loving place for all LGBTQ people to live. More than 1,800 of us are signing this letter because we wanted to say thank you for the LGBTQ characters, relationships, and storylines that you've included in Schitt's Creek. Your willingness to explore, inform, and educate about LGBTQ people and their relationships in an entertaining but respectful and positive manner sets a tone that is often missing. You have created new ways for queer viewers to see themselves represented, and in its own way that is just as important as the battles we are still fighting. We sincerely believe that shows like Schitt's Creek will serve as a catalyst to help change the world into a kinder, safer, more loving place for all LGBTQ people to live. And because of that, we will remain forever grateful with sincere gratitude and respect. The beautiful thing about Schitt's Creek that made it a staple now in the LGBTQ plus culture is how David and Patrick's relationship is portrayed. Being gay was never really a problem in this show. It just showed how a loving relationship is portrayed. It was showing a gay couple being a normal couple, which shouldn't be so fucking astounding and rare on television, but unfortunately it is. And it resonated with a lot of fans. It also shows some really cool behind the scenes details and stories. And I think all Shit's Creek fans would enjoy this. And if you haven't watched the show itself yet, what are you doing? You need to get on that. Schitt's Creek is one of my favorite shows of all time. I am David Rose though, so I am a bit biased. The next doc is so much fun, such a good time. It's the limited docuseries High Score. Long before the internet, a handful of visionaries reimagined the world. I made the worst game of all time. We felt that we were creating a world-changing technology. Video games afford you the opportunity to start over. In games, we all start at the exact same place. We're all playing by the same rules. What we did back then was ahead of its time, but the time is now. The overarching basic summary of this series is that it's a deep dive into classic video games and we get to hear from the people who made them. I felt really nostalgic for these games that I literally have never played. These were games my parents played and I still had FOMO watching them even with every gaming device I could ever want at my disposal. I'm still like, no, I need to play Space Invaders. The true heart of High Score was obviously the stories that were shared by fans and creators alike. Becky's story was my favorite. She was the woman who played in the Atari Championship in the 80s. That was definitely my favorite part. Truthfully, I'm not a video game kind of gal. I play Fallout 4, The Sims, Fable 2, and I've dabbled in Elden Ring. But regardless, whether you like video games or not, if you just want something easy and fun to watch, throw on High Score. The next title is a series I raved about quite a bit at the very beginning of NCQH, and it remains one of my favorite docu-series. It combines some sass, some fun, cuss words, and a lot of food. It's ugly delicious. People will find the things that are going to be delicious. Deliciousness as a whole is like a meme. It's going to find a way to survive. I'm calling you to tell you that Grace is pregnant and we're having a baby. 
I cannot wait for you to have your own kids. Oh, you're gonna start oh. a baby food company. And how could you not start something called Baby Changs? And you honestly look a little bit like a baby. A little bit. I'm not only the chef, I'm also a client. There's a moment of reckoning right now between old Dave Chang and dad Dave Chang. I'm trying to think, what does a third grader want to eat? Probably nothing that you've ever cooked. People that need to be fed the best are fed the worst. It almost brings cooking back to why you cared about it to begin with. Oh, lamb's testicles, my favorite. If you are a fan of Parts Unknown and the late, great Anthony Bourdain, I, how do I explain this? I can't say this is similar because nothing comes close except that one guy, the bald one who says gelatinous every other word. Oh my God, let me look, hold on. It's gonna drive me nuts. Let's see. Andrew goddamn Zimmerman. That's who it is. I fucking love that show. What was the show called though? He would like go to different parts of the world and eat the weirdest shit. Oh, it's literally called Bizarre Foods. I'm an idiot. I'm watching that after Skydancers. Fucking loved that show as a kid. I just remember being so intrigued by all the crazy stuff he'd eat and I'd want to try it too. And I was equally impressed by his vocabulary. But as I was saying, it's hard to explain what I mean when I say ugly delicious is similar. That's the only word I can find right now. It's honest. That's what it is. That is the common thread. It's an honest show with a lot of heart and amazing looking food. Let me break down what this show is. I haven't even explained it yet. James Beard, award-winning chef, David Chang, the man, the legend, goes on a journey to culinary hotspots around the world and chats with writers, activists, artists, and other chefs who use food as a vehicle to break down cultural barriers and tackle misconceptions. I think the importance of what this show does for its viewers is almost on a subconscious level. As I mentioned, it tackles cultural misconceptions through food, which is an easy way for us to digest the information, pardon the pun. I will say I liked season one better than I liked season two, but it's all really great to watch. It's like season one is an A plus and season two is an A. But be ready, if you watch this show, get a good meal to eat. You wanna have real food. Chips and salsa will not cut it, you will be hungry. The final doc on this list is not only one of my favorite documentaries, but also one of my favorite books, Becoming. I am from the south side of Chicago. That tells you as much about me as you need to know. So little of who I am happened in those eight years. So much more of who I was happened before. In high school, your guidance counselor didn't see in you what you saw yeah, in yourself. Yeah. She decided I was reaching too high. We can't afford to wait for the world to be equal, to start feeling seen. I feel like I gotta share with you all that the energy that's out there is much better than what we see. My mother would say, Michelle and Barack Obama aren't special. There are millions of Michelle and Barack Obamas all over the world. If we can open up a little bit more to each other and share our stories, that's what breaks down barriers. I am becoming a strong, confident, fierce girl who realizes that I have the power to change the world. Becoming is a documentary form of a memoir of former First Lady Michelle Obama. And it wasn't only heartwarming, but also very, very motivating. We get to see Michelle Obama growing up as a spirited, family-oriented girl who was motivated as hell, and she always seemed to have grace and grit, and obviously became ultra-successful and remained humble throughout it all without ever losing her confidence and self-worth. A lot of people seem to think humble means downplaying and keeping your head down, and that's just not the case. She balances humility and knowing that she is exceptional very, very well. A lot of it feels like a home movie, similar to Time is Illmatic, but a lot faster paced. They had to get a lot more information. It was a longer time period. If you end up watching Becoming and you enjoy it like I did, I would also recommend picking up her book as well. I read that faster than I read The Notebook at 13 years old. And whoo, whoo, when I tell you I didn't sleep reading that book and it had the first sex scene I had ever read, and it was so detailed. I went from a series of unfortunate events to Allie and Noah making love after being caught in a rainstorm.
Thank you again for listening today. I hope one of these documentaries piqued your interest. Definitely let me know your thoughts, whether you loved one or hated one. I like to know. I will say though, after rewatching some of these and watching almost every other documentary on Netflix to prepare for this, I am tired. I still love documentaries. I just need a break, a long break. I'm going to watch Sky Dancers and Bizarre Foods now. Be sure to check out the pod on Instagram at NCQH Podcast and or my personal Instagram at L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z as well as my TikTok L-E-A-M-A-R-Z-Z. Today, I'd like to spotlight Girls Who Code. Girls Who Code is an organization that works to inspire, educate, and equip girls with the computing skills to pursue 21st century opportunities. They value bravery, sisterhood, and activism, and strive to close the gender gap in tech. Their goal is to do so in new entry-level tech jobs by 2030, and they are on track to do just that, with 500 million people reached, 450,000 girls served, and half of those girls come from underrepresented groups. Girls Who Code is growing faster than ever and even teamed up with Doja Cat to launch the world's first codable music video for the hit song, Woman. To find one of their 8,500 programs worldwide that offer clubs, summer immersion programs, and college loops, be sure to check out girlswhocode.com. You can also find ways to get involved through fundraising, campaigning, and of course, there is always the option to donate if you are capable and comfortable doing so. Thank you again. Until next time, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, and stay strong. 